In our society, the human person is constantly bombarded with sensory input. Sounds, images, films, music, you name it. Due to the rise of smartphones and other devices, there's almost no place on earth where our senses cannot imbibe some kind of media. Even if I try to choose to be media-free, I cannot complete such simple quotidian tasks as filling my car with gas without the gas pump choosing for me what it deems I should watch while I wait. For current media culture knows, at least in part, a truth that humans have known for millennia, that the senses are the gateways to the soul, and that through the beholding of images, sounds, music, and the like, the human person can be formed for good or for ill. Thankfully, this is not by accident, but by design. The God who made us in his beautiful creation gave us our senses in order to be transformed for our good and our sanctification. And this is the deeper truth that Holy Mother Church has also known for millennia. Catholics, in fact, hold a privileged position. Due to our ability to behold images and sounds in the form of art and music, as part of the liturgical and sacramental life of the Church, in ceremonies that reach beyond the earthly materials of the art of this world, and touch upon the liturgy of heaven. What we take in through our senses matters, and it matters a great deal. And so we should ask, what should we see? What should we hear? And especially, what should we see and hear in church? And most of all, at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Of course, we should behold that which is good, true, beautiful, and holy. And we should open our outer and inner senses to this influx. Today, I would like to consider how one particular society, that of 17th century Venice, accomplished this communal contemplation of the good, the true, the beautiful, and the holy as a practice that we will call transformative beholding, a term that has been used less positively by some art historians, but which we will use to refer to the Catholic practice of intentionally beholding sacred beauty as a means to the glorification of God and the sanctification of his people. Here at Christendom College, I teach liturgical music, including a course focusing solely on music and art created in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. My doctorate is in the history of sacred music, and my narrow specialization is the sacred music of early modern Venice, a society that was very Catholic and very prolific in the production of beautiful art and music. As an aside, I should mention for listeners who might not be familiar with the term early modern, that I use it here to refer to the late Renaissance and early modern periods, that is from about 1500 to about 1700 or so, or the 16th and 17th centuries. Today, I will discuss how 17th century Venetians in particular practiced transformative beholding as part of their fervent devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Furthermore, I will invite us to consider how current-day Catholics might be influenced by their example. Let's start with the, no the notion in general of the use of the external senses as a means for the formation of the Christian soul. This was an idea that was very familiar to late Renaissance and early modern Italians, including Venetians. We see it articulated in many writings of the time. For example, in response to the Protestant rejection of the veneration of holy images, in 1563, the Council of Trent clearly affirmed the role of sacred art in the life of the true faith. Quote, 
that the images of Christ, of the Virgin Mother of God, and of the other saints are to be had and retained particularly in temples, and that due honor and veneration are to be given them. Not that any divinity or virtue is believed to be in them, on account of which they are to be worshipped, as was of old done by the Gentiles, who place their hope in idols. But because the honor which is shown them is referred to the prototypes which those images represent. And the bishops shall carefully teach this, that great profit is derived from all sacred images, because the miracles which God has performed by means of the saints and their salutary examples are set before the eyes of the faithful, that so they may give God thanks for those things, may order their own lives and manners in imitation of the saints, and may be excited to adore and love God and to cultivate piety. In keeping with this and the Council's emphasis on catechesis, a cardinal named Silvio Antoniano followed St. Charles Borromeo's encouragement to write a three-volume work on the Christian education of children. The cardinal counsels that the Catholic domestic space should be filled with an abundance of holy images and objects to stir reverence and devotion in those who dwelled there and to communicate to those who visited that this was a Christian home. And here I quote art historian Margaret Morse. And of course, late Renaissance and early modern Catholics knew that the contemplation of sacred beauty should not be limited to the home, but that their towns and cities should also be filled with holy images and sounds in order to form its inhabitants in Christian virtue. This persists even today. Have you ever tried to walk through an Italian town without catching several glimpses of St. Anthony of Padua? It's nearly impossible. Venice is no exception. And during the period in question, her citizens displayed their devotion to sacred beauty most fervently in their veneration of the icon of Our Lady of Victory, the Madonna Nicopea, and in musical settings of the prayer most closely associated with this icon, the Salve Regina, a prayer that most Catholics know today as the Hail Holy Queen. Tradition holds that the Madonna Nicopea was painted by St. Luke. For centuries, it was in the possession of the emperors in the East, who carried Our Lady of Victory into battle with them. To her, they attributed their successes. It was brought to Venice at the turn of the 13th century following the Fourth Crusade, and Venetians fervently adopted Our Lady of Victory as the patroness of their beloved city and republic. I would like to add, as an aside, that the Fourth Crusade is a complicated historical phenomenon, and we don't have time to discuss it today. Uh, but it should suffice to say that an unfortunate turn of events led to the Venetian sack of Constantinople, a city which was usually the Serene Republic's ally. To anyone wanting to know more about Venetian history, I highly recommend Thomas Madden's Venice, A New History. After Venice acquired the precious image of Our Lady, the Madonna Nicopea came to play a more and more crucial role in the lives of Venetians and it became more and more closely associated with the singing of the Salve Regina. The liturgical books of St. Mark's describe a practice that was well established at least by the mid-16th century. On every Sunday in ordinary time, after Vespers, the clergy and the choir would process from the high altar to the Madonna Nicopea, while the choir sang the Salve Regina. There would be a short prayer service before Our Lady's image, followed by a procession back to the choir to the accompaniment of the conclusion of the Marian hymn, O Gloriosa Domina. 
The custom of singing the Salve Regina after Vespers or Compline during ordinary time is, of course, not unique to St. Mark's. However, at San Marco, the singing of the Salve Regina was especially associated with the veneration of the Madonna Nicopea. Giovanni Stringa's 1604 revision of Sansovino's Venezia Citta Nobilissima, a monumental work that is part history, part travel guide, provides further insight into Nicopian processions and the visual piety of early modern Venetians. But it is beautiful to see when a procession is made with said image and makes its way around the piazza. It begins by coming out of the door of San Giacomo and passing by the court of the palace, it circles the piazza and enters by the door, the place where one encounters the church of San Basso and under the alley ascends to the second main door and goes to the main altar. It is beautiful to see, say the great number of nobles, one to another, those behind the great capital of the canons that are behind the image carried by the sacerdoti, under a white umbrella of fine damask carried by the other four sacerdoti, taking in the midst of them the image, walking with much devotion and reaching unto this exemplar with much religion. Foreigners regard it with much stupor, but it is more beautiful to see when the doge with all of the signoria enters to act his part, presenting the greatest, most urgent needs of his people. In such a procession follow the musicians of the church singing while walking, litanies of the most blessed virgin. What impresses the reader most in Strinka's account is the repetition of the phrase, it is beautiful to see. Furthermore, Stringa transitions seamlessly from the visual to the aural as he concludes with a description of the choir singing litanies as they process. And in fact, in the years following the publication of Stringa's account, Our Lady of Victory became even more visible as the icon was moved from the sacristy to its present position at the altar of St. John the Baptist. And it was also adorned with precious jewels, which sadly were stolen and no longer decorate the image. The most important veneration of the image took place, however, when a terrible plague hit northern Italy, first brought by imperial forces to Mantua in 1629, and then spreading to Venice by the summer of 1630. As the disease worsened, Venetians sought divine assistance and saintly intercession to end the plague. To this end, the Venetian Senate vowed to build a votive church to the Virgin, the Santa Maria della Salute, or Our Lady of Good Health. In conjunction with this vow, the Doge, the Signoria, and the procurators of St. Mark's held three ceremonies over the course of the year, which included the veneration of the icon of Our Lady of Victory, alongside the singing of the Salve Regina. On October 26 of 1630, a procession with the Madonna Nicopea circled the Piazza di San Marco for two hours before re-entering the Basilica. The icon was then placed on the high altar and the clergy celebrated a low mass of the Virgin, which concluded with the singing of the Salve Regina. On April the 1st, 1631, Venetian authorities laid the cornerstone of the new church of Our Lady of Good Health. On this occasion, the Nicopea was carried throughout Venice and over boat bridges to the site of the new church while litanies were sung. After a low mass of the Virgin at the site of the Madonna della Salute, the Nicopia was returned in procession to San Marco, 
where the entire ceremony concluded again with the singing of the Salve Regina. When, with great relief, the Doge declared the end of the plague on November 21st, 1631, the Nicopia was again carried in procession. But on this celebratory occasion, the singing of the Te Deum replaced the supplications of the Salve Regina. From this time onward, an annual solemn procession took place every year on November 21st, the Feast of the Presentation of the Virgin, in which the Madonna Nicopea was carried from San Marco to the site of the Madonna della Salute, which was finally completed and consecrated in 1687. These processions were firmly established as a time for Venetians to offer thanksgiving to Our Lady's intercession during such a dark time in Venice's history. Now that we have considered the images and sights involved in these practices, I would like for us to fill our ears with some of the sounds one may have heard during the plague ceremonies of 1630 and 1631. One of the greatest composers of early modern Catholic music, Claudio Monteverdi, was also the director of music, or the Maestro di Capella, at the Basilica di San Marco during these years. Scholars have identified one or two of his settings of the Salve Regina as among those sung at the plague processions. Let's hear the beginning of his setting of this well-known prayer for two high voices, and let's consider how this music augments the practice of transformative beholding. But first, a few words about this setting. This type of music is what Monteverdi and his contemporaries called the modern style. We now call it early Baroque, but the label Baroque was not applied to this period of music until later. The modern style features both voices and instrumental accompaniment. Above all, Monteverdi is following a dictum that was articulated by his brother, that in the modern style, the words govern how the music is composed, that is, in keeping with the late Renaissance emphasis upon rhetoric and the art of persuasive speech, early 17th century composers sought to achieve in musical gesture the same end, to move the listener by musical gesture in service to a text. How does Monteverdi do this? Myriad ways, really, but we will hear only the first minute or so of this piece, which takes about seven or eight minutes to perform in total. Here, the opening salutation to Our Lady, Salve Regina, or Hail Queen, is repeated nearly countless times, over about a minute of the musical performance. The sonorities are mournful, fervent, and supplicative, in keeping with the desperation of Venice during these plague years. The repetition of the opening salutation operates like the exordium or opening of an oration, according to the classical model but it also does something else for the listener in regard to the enhancement of transformative beholding. Because music is sound and not an image, and because it is fleeting, lacking the greater sensory permanence of an image that can be seen over a longer period of time, it is somewhat difficult to hold up ideas in sound for the beholder to contemplate extensively. However, there are a few tried and true methods that composers have invoked over the centuries. One method is to prolong the pronunciation of a word so that the singer holds the most important vowel, perhaps singing it with all sorts of interesting twists and turns over a long period of time. We hear this frequently, for example, in the works of the later Baroque composer, Handel. 
Another means is to repeat those same words several times, altering the musical patterns so that the listener both continues to hear and to contemplate the same word, but also to hear it just a little bit afresh each time. Here, Monteverdi manages to use both approaches brilliantly. By having the singers repeat the invocation Salve Regina time and again, echoing back and forth to different musical gestures, Monteverdi holds up before the ears and therefore the interior eyes of his listeners, she whom he salutes. And he ushers his listener into a posture of reverence, humility, and supplication. He then expands his revelation of Our Lady's attributes by weaving in the next few words of the prayer, Mater Misericordiae, Vital Ducedo et Spes Nostra Salve, Mother of Mercy, Our Life, Our Sweetness, and Our Hope, thus also assuring his listeners that in beholding this lady in sound, they will find mercy, comfort, healing, life, and hope. I am always struck by how one must really abandon oneself to a receptive posture to appreciate this music and the way it luxuriates in the sounds and supplications in an unhurried manner. Also, I find it compelling that, although death was actually knocking at their doors, Venetians thought it so important to spend so much time looking at Our Lady during this chapter of the city's history and that Monteverdi's setting of this prayer communicates the sheer time they committed to contemplating Our Lady and Our Lord as the most important activities of their lives, regardless or possibly because of their current circumstances. Let us now turn our attention to another Venetian setting of the Salve Regina from later in the 17th century. By 1655, the plague had long passed, but there was a strong living memory of it in the minds of Venetians who processed annually to the Madonna della Salute, which had not yet been completed. It was during this time that the Venetian woman Barbara Strozzi published a volume of 14 exquisite, passionately religious motets for solo voice and instrumental accompaniment, which she called sacred musical affections. Among these affections is the setting of the Salve Regina. Let's start with the opening of Strozzi's setting, which echoes Monteverdi's setting in many ways. This makes sense, 
since her family knew Monteverdi and she would have heard his music on many occasions, although it's unlikely that as an 11-year-old she would have been present at the plague ceremonies of 1630 and 1631. Furthermore, borrowing music from another composer was not necessarily seen as plagiarism at this time, but as a compliment and as a way to pay homage. In this case, first and foremost, because Strozzi's listeners would have known Monteverdi's music, and so it was not secret that she is practically quoting him in the opening of her setting of the same prayer. We will listen to the opening of Strozzi's setting. Let's notice how, in similar fashion, Strozzi sets up a musical exordium with the initial salutation salve, which is repeated and also prolonged over fascinating melodic twists and turns. Like Monteverdi, Strozzi also emphasizes certain attributes of Our Lady, in particular her mercifulness and her role as Our Mother. We can hear how the modern style has expanded over the intervening years since Monteverdi's version, and how the elongation of words, for example, misericordiae, has become more dramatic, as efforts increase to allow listeners to behold in sound, so that they fittingly contemplate with the inner senses the transformative truths of the text. The most interesting interpretive gesture of Strozzi's setting, however, occurs in the passage of the prayer concerning the Virgin's eyes. Tuos misericordis oculos. And it is at this moment that the most enlightening discovery comes regarding the value of the sacred gaze as outer, inner, offered, and received. We have already mentioned how composers can hold up before the listener's mind certain ideas of words by repetition and prolongation. Another special way that composers can deal with a text is through the practice which scholars call musical exegesis. That is, just as biblical commentators exegete the scriptures, drawing out the deep, rich meaning of sacred writ, so, one might say in a lesser way, 
the musical composer can draw out meanings of a sacred text by emphasizing one word, repeating another, and also by the use of divisions and repetitions to highlight certain aspects of the words. In Barbara Stroetz's setting of the Salve Regina, we have a case in point. In regard to how she divides and repeats the text in a way that is unknown to me in any other 17th century setting. In this, our final audio example of the day, we will hear first Strozzi's setting pays homage to Mary's role as our advocate, Advocata Nostra, but that more importantly, her advocacy can only find fulfillment when she turns her gaze upon the suppliant soul. And although we do not have time to hear the entire conclusion of the piece today, it takes about 10 minutes to, total to perform, it is important to note that in fact, Strozzi repeats the text Tuos misericordis oculos ad nos converte, your merciful eyes turn upon us, four times, to a lovely, lilting, triple meter refrain. First, these words appear twice in their traditional place in the middle of the prayer, and then this phrase appears again two more times after the entire text of the antiphon has already been sung. So with the next audio example, you will see a chart comparing the traditional text of the prayer without any repetitions, and then the way that Strozzi divides and repeats the text. And we can see in this comparison between the prayer, sort of straightforward and plain and simple without any additional repetitions, as compared to the way that one hears the prayer in Strozzi's musical setting, her emphasis upon the merciful eyes of the Virgin and her turning of the gaze upon the prayerful soul. Strozzi's treatment of this text is especially intriguing. I know of no other setting of the Salve Regina that interrupts the final Marian salutation, O Clemens, O Pia, O Dulcis Virgo Maria, by reinserting the text, Misericordis Oculos ad nos converti, Your eyes of mercy turn upon us. In regard to the practice of transformative beholding, this reinsertion of the invocation of the Virgin's gaze reveals that the most crucial act of beholding is not the suppliant's contemplation of Mary, but it is rather the Blessed Mother's gaze upon the petitioner that is revealed to be prior and the first occasion for grace. Here we might be reminded of the conclusion of Dante's Paradiso, where the poet must first behold the light of Mary's face, the visage most resembling Christ's, 
before he can gaze upon our Lord. Or to look to a more recent author, we can consider the closing passage of Dr. Brant Petrie's Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, a text I use in my course on Our Lady in Music and Art. Quote, when you begin to behold Mary and take her to be your own mother, you will discover something amazing and precious. You will discover that she is already there waiting for you. You will discover that Mary was beholding you long before you ever looked at her. You will discover that Mary was praying for you long before you ever began to talk with her. You will find that Mary was loving you long before you ever learned to love her. Mary, like Jesus himself, is not dead. She is very much alive in the heavenly kingdom. She already tastes the glory of the resurrection and the new creation. And she is beholding you. She is praying for you. She is loving you. Let us put aside all the images, sounds, and sensory data we encounter every day, and let us fix our eyes on Mary. Let us take time to look at our mother, to ask for her intercession, and to thank the God who gave us this lady, singular among our race in grace and beauty. May we ever turn our gaze upon the one who beholds our Lord in the bodily resurrection, and may we thus be transformed into her likeness, good, true, beautiful, and holy. If we are transformed in this way, becoming ourselves, as St. Maximilian Kolbe hoped, little icons for Our Lady in our families, in the church, in our institutions, and in our cities, we can, like early modern Venetians, strive to shape our society in Christian virtue, and thus to bring hope and light to a darkened world. Thank you. All right. I, wonderful. So thank you so much for joining today, and I already see some questions. So we have some questions. Thank you so much for watching, and let's um, thank you for your wonderful questions. Okay, first of all, could you describe about uh, could what you described about the Salvador Regina be the origins of saying it after Mass? Not the origins; those are medieval, um, so those go way back. And um, so it's use, and so I, you must be. Uh, are you? You're probably talking about the use as a after communion. Um, and that use is um, less known to me, uh, but what I do know about is the medieval origins of singing the Salve Regina um, after um, Compline, um, which started with the religious orders, very quickly spreading to the Dominicans, um, you know, very close to the, to the founding in, in the 13th century. So not the origins, but it's... Um, you know, related to those liturgical phenomena. Because, of course, the Salve Regina is one of these Marian antiphons. And the word antiphon is, um, it can be a little bit confusing at first um, to students because, of course, we use the term two ways in liturgical music. First of all, we refer to um, the musical bookends that sort of go on either side of a psalm or the introit chant um, as an antiphon. It's like a chorus or a refrain. But then we also talk about the Marian antiphons. And these are sort of standalone musical items that change with the liturgical season um, that are traditionally sung after Compline. So, of course, the Salve Regina, um, you know, Alma Redem Torres Mater, Ave Regina Celorum, and in the Easter season, Regina Celi. Um, so, thank you. All right, so here's the next question. What is it about our human nature that makes music so penetrating? 
That is a huge philosophical question. <laughs> um, it, we, we couldn't possibly, we would need an, at least a semester to address this. Um, but in the first instance, of course, um, God created everything that is. Um, and everything that exists has a goodness um, because of the good God that sustains its existence. So music is just something that exists is good, right? And then there's also on the natural level, the human person has always been able to, um, to appreciate music on a natural level. The human soul has always been moved by music. So um, if you really want to do more reading and you haven't read ancient Greek philosophers on this issue, um, I highly recommend starting with Plato and Aristotle and some of the Neo-Pythagorean writers. Um, there is a great, there are a few historical readers on music history. There's Strunk's source readings of musical history that have some excellent excerpts from ancient antiquity. Um, there's also a reader called Music in the Western World. However, I would caution you uh, with those readers, the editors themselves are not, to my knowledge, practicing Catholic. Uh, Catholic, so a, a lot of their editorial introductions to the historical sources can contain anti-Catholic remarks, and they just don't always understand Catholicism. Um, but if you sort of discard the editorial commentary and you just read the historical sources, you'll learn a lot about that. But I, but I will say, um, there's this famous quote from Plato, of course, that about the movements of the heavens that there's a there's a harmony to the movement of the universe, and that our souls, um, you know, although they are perturbed in this life, they're kind of called to be in harmony with the movement of the universe, um, which is in itself a harmony. Um, and this gets picked up by the Neoplatonist and Christian philosopher Boethius, um, another author that I highly recommend you read on this topic. So hopefully that gives you enough to go on for now. Huge. Huge philosophical question. Hopefully, maybe we'll have a chance to devote a semester to that sometime. Um, all right, thank you. So the next question, how do we return to a culture that produces such beautiful music and praise of God? What a wonderful question. Well, I think the good news is that there are a lot of places and pockets and um, kind of subcultures in our society where this is happening. Um, I was just reading about the Christendom graduate who is involved in the um, Angelico Institute um, in Ohio, in that area. So there are many places, especially in the Catholic Church, where people are um, promoting beauty, especially in music and the liturgy. Um, another wonderful institute is the Benedict XVI Institute, uh, based uh, you know under the... Um, leadership of Archbishop Cordelioni in San Francisco. I have done some work with them. Um, they are doing wonderful work, and their composer in residence, Frank LaRocca, is a brilliant composer, writes beautiful music. Um, if you're interested in hearing something, you can go on YouTube and Google his Mass of the Americas. It's stunning. Um, also, uh, we have another, if I can give some shout-outs to a few individuals, also um, a friend of mine, uh, Peter Carter, who is at uh, Princeton, he has also started the Catholic Sacred Music Project, which is also devoted to the promotion of, of beautiful Catholic music. So, so I guess I guess what my answer would be, uh, we do kind of need to to change our pedagogical systems. Um, so. 
the more that maybe the secular and public educational system can be formed by the Christian and classical um, revival that we're seeing in a lot of private schools, that will help a lot there because that will form um, thinkers and, you know, just form people in, in the beautiful classical traditions, uh, but also maybe just to seek out and give support to these groups within the Catholic Church who are promoting beautiful music. Um, so all, I think all of these things need to converge, but we can all make our efforts to help make that happen. Okay, next question. What are some ways families can integrate music into home prayers? That's a great question as well. Um, well, I understand that some families do. Uh, I would recommend, I mean, I think chant um, is the best form of music. So if your family is up to learning some simple forms of chant that you don't know them very well, um, you might also go um, on YouTube and, and look for some videos, maybe particularly of the monks of Salem singing, S-O-L-E-S-M-E-S. -E um, also, Corpus Christi Watershed is a wonderful website that has um, a lot of videos uh, people singing chant, um, but I would say start simple. Close with the Marian Antiphon and then expand from there. That would be my advice. All right, thank you so much. God bless you all. Thank you for joining us for today's Principles Live Lecture. Principles is made possible by our President's Council, our Principal Society, and all of our benefactors who share with the wider world the truths of wisdom and knowledge that students receive here at Christendom College. And if you're not yet a Principal Society member, please consider joining us and making this content free for others. Thank you so much and God bless you.